Hello from the Private Practice Podcast Studio in London. I'm Daniel P. Brown. And hello from the Private Practice Podcast Studio in Spain. I'm James Hall. And Happy New Year, Happy New Decade. Dan, it's been so long since we last recorded and spoke to each other. Yeah, yeah. Or have you made a New Year's resolution to spend less time having housekeeping and putting irrelevant details in this podcast? In which case, I won't mention the fact that we actually just recorded episode five the same day. (laughs) I'm regressing into bad habits. (laughs) And it's a new year and you're regressing into habits from years gone by. Well, James, um, I don't know, you know, if you want to talk about the timeline of what's happening when and who and how, that's up to you. I don't mind. I've made no New Year's resolutions as of yet. The only revelation that I'm going to make is that for us, it's still 2019. We don't even know who is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Here you go. Do you want to make a uh, prediction? No, absolutely Okay, so hello, welcome to Private Practice Podcast, Season 5, Episode 6. We're on the flow season. We are guiding you through, as you read along with us, should you have chosen to, uh, Flow by Michaly Csikszentmihalyi. We are continuing this season with the subject of the flow of thought. The flow of thought. Um, and what, what, what does the episode bring us today, James? What kind of things might we be chatting around about? We'll be looking at memory, words, both the internal voice and also external communication through reading and writing and conversation. We'll briefly have a look at history and science, or at least history and science feature in the chapter, and then finally philosophy. Excellent. So as ever, you like to use those chapter headings as kind of a guide to what we're going to talk about rather than looking at the whole topic. I know you've probably got some edited highlights and some quotes for us from the book. Is that right? I have, yes. Just <laughs> I haven't, I've, so I've used the pink pen this time. I've hardly written anything, although I have done some furious scribbling this time. Usually I very neatly underlined things. This time I've sort of like circled entire paragraphs so I think perhaps the flow of thought um, as a topic. Is that, is that the actual title of this chapter, James? The flow of thought? The flow of thought. So li- uh. last chapter was the body in flow, and this chapter moves on to... In fact, it moves on from all the previous chapters that have talked about things like walking, boxing, being a ballerina, doing all these kinds of activities, and it moves on to having theoretically created order in consciousness by now five chapters in what else can you do with your mind i think for us for private practice uh, podcast i think it's is potentially one of the most important areas to look at in terms of flow because what we're really looking at for for the most part in our podcast is the mind is dealing with different phenomena that arise in the mind um 
And if we go back to the thing that often makes you scream with laughter from this book, the classic work on how to achieve happiness tagline on the front cover, that's often what we are looking at. We're trying to look at how to be more content, how to feel more at ease, how to enjoy life more. And often we have been talking since season one about what we think. What we think about what? James. Here's a question for you. What is Private Practice Podcast about? Well, it started off as spoof therapy sessions. And then if we ignore the, the brief tangent with some travel diaries, it then became ideas in psychoanalysis. And in the mm-hmm. process of trying to better understand myself and becoming interested in these ideas in psychoanalysis, you gave me the book of flow which deals with ordering consciousness. And so at the moment, this whole season is about finding order in consciousness. It has parallels with mindfulness. And in the case of today's episode, it has parallels with psychoanalysis. So this is possibly one of the first... We kind of touched on it last week when we talked about... Well, last week, last episode. We kind of touched on it last episode when we talked about walking and how to go walking as a flow activity. But if you find yourself completely unable to to, to get away from a particular thought, for example, work or an ex-relationship or something like that, If you're trying to concentrate on thoughts coming into your mind and you're restricting yourself to walking, for example, in a straight line or around the park or something, you're not distracting yourself with TV, cinema, meeting friends, doing housework or anything like that. You're just walking, say, in a straight line and paying attention to your thoughts. And if you realise in that process that you can't get beyond being troubled by an ex-relationship or being troubled by any aspect of your career, health, relationships or anything like that, then it might be time to talk about it with an analyst in psychoanalysis. So we briefly touched on it last time, but this time uh, there's a whole chunk of this chapter specifically about psychoanalysis. Excellent, James. Why use ten words when you could use a thousand? <laughs> <laughs> this, you know, an, an entire episode of a podcast won't be filled with one word. In fact, also in this chapter, Mickley, Chitson Mickley talks about the enjoyment of words. So I'm going to use as many words as I want in this chapter. Mm, lovely, yes. Um, I probably wanted an answer a bit like this. James, what is Private Practice Podcast about? Oh, it's basically about your mind, your thoughts, and then behaviours associated. Ah, that's what it's about. And what are we looking at today? Today we're looking at thoughts. That's what we're doing. So this chapter, of all the chapters so far, is probably most um, related to the Private Practice Podcast core message, that your thoughts and feelings, of course, but your thoughts and the content of your mind and how you work with it are really important. Dan, what does that even mean? Today we're going to look at thoughts. How do you look at a thought? Answer me that question. How do you look at a thought? Riddle James this. Oh, yes. Okay, well, James, how do you look at a thought? Well, I guess, firstly, you verbalise the thought. And do you verbalise it internally, externally, both? Well, you would verbalise it both 
internally first to make sense of the the sensation and the idea and the space and the the quality and the tone of what's going on inside your mind and then you might you might write it down too James just to clarify when you said actually you could just say it in 10 words what we're doing is we're looking at the mind and thinking about uh, how your thoughts affect your behavior and we're mm-hmm. just going to look at those thoughts today there you go simple when i then ask you to clarify that Let's have a count how many words you needed to even start to clarify that. I mean, I can't remember the actual number, so I can't follow through on my accusation. No, my mm. somewhere between a threat and an accusation. I was, bas- mm-hmm. I was claiming that you were unable to actually make mm-hmm. that concise 10-word summary of what this podcast is about. If what we need is a neat summary where someone's actually given it some consideration and put it down into ordered words and put that on a page so that everyone is on the same page, which is page 117. Lo and behold, you have the book in front of you, so let's do it. The good things in life do not come only through the senses. Some of the most exhilarating experiences we undergo are generated inside the mind triggered by information that challenges our ability to think, rather than from the use of sensory skills. As Sir Francis Bacon noted almost 400 years ago, wonder, which is the seed of knowledge, is the reflection of the purest form of pleasure. Just as there are flow activities corresponding to every physical potential of the body, every mental operation is able to provide its own particular form of enjoyment. And so then there's kind of a recap of what the book is all about. So not so much what this podcast is all about, but what we've learned so far about flow. So remember that graph where you have to match your ability with your challenge. So if you're a beginner at something, then you can't just assume yourself to be an expert because the challenge will be overwhelming and you'll be filled with anxiety and you won't be able to satisfy the activity by reaching the flow channel. Equally, if you're complacent or you're very good at something and you're not being challenged or whatever it is, then you need to increase the challenge consistently to create more complexity and to keep moving along that flow channel. We've learnt that. We've also learnt that there need to be rules, a goal, and a way of obtaining feedback. We've also learnt that psychic entropy prevents flow in the mind. When you let all your natural random thoughts come into your head and you don't tame them, it's impossible to create order in consciousness, and flow is order in consciousness. So that's what we've learnt so far. Uh huh. So, Specifically, when he repeats this in the chapter, he says, for example, we don't usually notice how little control we have over the mind because habits channel psychic energy so well that thoughts seem to follow each other by themselves without a hitch. Uh, so when your mind is out of control, it seems like a constant conversation in your mind and that that makes sense and you're essentially just listening to it rather than participating in that conversation. 
Um, and then he says, unless a person knows how to give order to his or her thoughts, attention will be attracted to whatever is the most problematic at the moment. So usually we drift into negative things like, I hate my ex, my job is boring, I don't have enough money, I thought my life would be better than this, and so on and so on. And then he also says, to avoid this condition, people are naturally eager to fill their minds with whatever information is readily available, as long as it distracts attention from turning inward and dwelling on negative feelings and all that chaos inside the mind. And the example he gives, of course, is switching on the TV, which does not provide a flow activity. It provides some momentary pleasure that distracts you from the swirling chaos of your untamed mind. So that's a nice summary of what we learnt in the first half of our adventure together on the flow boat. Yes, on the flow boat. Um, yes, and I think if we're looking at the podcast rather than the book, we chose this book because we hoped it would help perhaps those who are struggling to order their thoughts and their consciousness because they are potentially preoccupied with concerns or anxieties or worries or doubts. Um, so this chapter on thought, does it for you, James, give any direction to how one might do that when someone is um, enmeshed with the chaos of their own mind? What's the first example he... he what's the first kind of um, topic he uses to say this is how one traditionally or humans have traditionally started to order their own mind daydreaming daydreaming i love it definitely this is something i am prone to well actually he says i quite actually i'm going to read exactly what he says because you'd think that it was me saying this the way he caricatures the world as some kind of obnoxious idiot talking down to the people as if if only they were as divine as I. But no, I can promise you I'm reading a quote. This is not the quote of James Hall. This is Mikkeli Chitson Mikkeli saying, For instance, one of the simplest ways to use the mind is daydreaming, playing out some sequence of events as mental images. But even this apparently easy way to order a thought is beyond the range of many people. <laughs> And then there's a Yale psychologist who studied daydreaming and mental imagery more than uh, most scientists, or at least at the time when this was written, showing that daydreaming is a skill that many children have never learnt to use. Um, now, we won't be too specific uh, about this, but uh, you've said to me that actually amongst the many children you have taught over the last couple of years, you've discovered that some children really struggle with imagination. They can't... Absolutely. And and I found that really strange. I, I guess then, if it was something that not everyone can do, I'm blessed with a rather vivid and strong imagination. Um, and, of course, there are pitfalls with that. There's a definite difference between... So, so we're talking about the fantasy world, and we did a whole episode on fantasy in our previous season. Um, and fantasy can be, therefore, positive and enjoyable and almost like a game, but it can also be quite tragic and lonely and isolating and uh, the risk of being a bit too strong with it but quite dangerous uh, in its extreme so Chitzen Mitley is, is saying that daydreaming is a kind of a fun enjoyable flow activity or can be yes and it can be useful sometimes to play out a situation in your mind as a rehearsal for real life so that you're not necessarily making it up in the moment and trying to make sense of the chaos of all the thoughts in the moment. You've already tried to make 
some sense based on your prediction of how something could pan out. And then in the moment, you're concentrating more on what's happening to you and how you're reacting rather than trying to make sense of chaotic stimulation and chaotic trying to warder those thoughts. Is it something that you do? Do you daydream? Yes, a lot. Can you give me some examples that you might like to share with the listener about your daydreaming? Uh, Well, I mean, I've talked about the magazine I used to make for 10 years for my aunt. That magazine was called Daydream, and it was called Daydream because I I used to live in a small village, and I was desperate to move to the city and see what the rest of the world was like and see what people beyond my what I thought was a very small uh, sphere of influence were like. And I found that through reading books and TV and films and things and some travelling. And But I was itching to... I, I thought, this is... My life is just on pause at the moment. This is just training for when I eventually become 18 and off I go as an adult into the world and life really begins there. Even though I did enjoy uh, education, when I wasn't learning at school... I felt like my life was just on pause, waiting for life to begin at 18. So then I, it was kind of like naive daydreaming where I would, I had ideas of what the future would look like, what my house of the future would look like, what my friends would be like and where we'd go and what we'd talk about and what we'd do uh, based on things I'd seen in films and friends of my parents and so on and my aunt and things like that. And then when it actually ha- when 18 came and I left home and I went to London and I found myself completely confused by the world, unable to have conversations, unable to connect with people, uh, unable to understand why I thought other people were so underwhelming. Like, why do you, why are you so predictable and cliched? Why are you not open-minded? Why am I not learning from you? Why are you not? able to imagine things that I want you to imagine? Why is everything so normal? Why is everything so underwhelming? And then I thought, right, well, I've got bad luck here, so I'm just going to sit it out for this year, and then next year I'll go to another university and I'll do something else, and that's where I'll find my luck. And as it happened, after two years, I did. Fi- I thought I had found my luck. After two years, suddenly things fell into place. In one go, I got a job... I moved into a new house. I started doing student radio and made friends with lots of people. And suddenly I thought, finally, I found my things and I found my people and it all slots into life. But that was, that was still based on this complete, well, to some extent, naivety. I, just, uh, the, I spent most of my life essentially confused, unable to make sense of things. But... Was this because your daydreams or your rich internal fantasies about what should be and what you wanted were not performed as a game, as an enjoyment, as an, an activity, a flow activity? They were a kind of a hmm, an escape? They were a kind of escape. May, I don't, may, now I've come to think of it, I, I would have, up until this point, I would have said that they were a, an enjoyable activity where I was instead of having the chaos of interpreting the world, I was ordering what I knew into what I wanted for the future, and it was an enjoyable process. 
and I've always liked daydreaming. But now I come to think about it, it may have been no different to turning the TV on and escaping into a fantasy world of drama. I was turning my internal TV on and escaping into the, just the pleasure of my ill-informed, naive hope for what the future would be like, not paying attention to the present, not understanding, not tackling my lack of understanding about other people and empathy and myself and so on, and just instead escaping into this fantasy world of what the future might be like, hopefully, fingers crossed. I, I think, though, there's there's something to be said for the two elements to what we're talking about, or what you're talking about, sorry, is there there was hope in there and there was desire and there was a kind of a... a, 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 a create you, you, you create in a kind of a road roadmap or, a, or a, a, a target or an end goal, having something in your sight. So there was that, but perhaps there was a, a lack of understanding that it was fantasy and it was daydream and it was it it wasn't exactly what was going to happen it was what what you in an ideal world what you would be trying to make happen so there was probably positive and a bit of mm, not so positive in it i think maybe maybe now if i daydream it would be different i don't know this is this is this is all very hypothetical i can't i I haven't I don't think I've paid attention to daydreaming recently. So I don't know if I have a good answer to this. I'll give a hypothetical answer. Now, when I daydream, it's more likely to be that I have a specific thing I want to do. So let's say I wanted to make a painting. And before I start painting, I'll daydream about the idea of the painting or what it might look like in the future or when I finished it in other words or something like that and I will enjoy playing out different future scenarios in my mind and it will be ordering my thoughts so that I can then start the painting or do the thing whatever it is but like I say that's hypothetical because I'm really been paying attention to my daydreams recently I've been paying attention a lot to emotions and thoughts that pop yeah. into my head, but not controlled ones. Yes, I, I wonder whether, you know, is there a definition in the chapter about what, what daydreaming involves? Because, I you know, I, w- I would always, I suppose, have assumed that daydreaming involves a kind of acknowledgement of a fantasy, you know, whether it be, you know, something really nice, like, oh, imagining being on the holiday that you're going to take later on and thinking about some of the you know there's an element of planning in it and there's an element of wish fulfillment in it you know I often have have referred in this podcast because because daydreaming has come up before and you know in the fantasy episode I think it did um to you know something a kind of a wish fulfillment I've talked about winning the lottery and then starting to think how you spend all that money that you've won and and starting to think of the pitfalls but also the excitement and the people you treat and what, what you know what you'd buy and what you'd invest and you know and it's a kind of a and then you can kind of come out of that daydream and you sort of realize you haven't won the lottery and and recognize where you are and come back into the room and it was just a not 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 exactly an idle way of passing the time but not a very active way of passing your time but then it's also a good way of learning about yourself like if you daydream pretend that you've won the lottery or pretend that you become prime minister or president or something like that or pretend that you 
get the girl or boyfriend of your dreams, you can rehearse that situation in your mind and suddenly think, oh, really? Is that, how, is that what I would do? Oh, I hate myself. And then you start to think <laughs> about, where did that thought come from? Uh, am I really that much of a megalomaniac, totalitarian uh, dictator? So, for example, if you don't daydream about your political ideas, you just adopt a collection of thoughts based on things that you haven't thought through but you've heard, then you haven't played them out to their logical conclusion. You haven't really thought about how they apply to your own core beliefs, for example. And therefore, when you play that out in your mind... So let's just take the recent election, for example. Let's say you voted Labour. If you play out in your mind the idea of, oh, I voted Labour because um, there's a huge gap between the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, the gap is too wide, and Jeremy Corbyn is going to try and close that gap. That's a good thing, he's a nice man, blah, blah, blah. You, that might be the extent of your thoughts. And, the, the, and forget distractions about anti-Semitism or anything else like that, just in terms of the ideology of taxing the rich to invest in less fortunate people, you might think that's a good thing, I support that, therefore I vote Labour. Um, but if you play out in your mind what happens next and you play out um, how, how do the rich people feel? Oh, well, they're irritated that they've been taxed, but so what, they deserve it. And how do the poor people feel? Oh, they're very grateful, they finally got something, their lives are improving, everything's getting better. Okay, good, still, it makes sense. And then you go to the next level. So then what, do the people who have more, are they going to suddenly just accept that for the rest of their life, or will they constantly want more? And the, the rich people who have been taxed more heavily, do we keep taxing them or do we stop taxing them heavily? Do we, do we keep increasing that tax or do we just leave it as it is? And if we just leave it as it is, does that mean that there's no more money for the increase? And you might not disagree with what I... Sorry, you might not agree with what I've just said as a, as a political idea, but if you play that thought out in your mind, you suddenly think, oh, it's not as simple as you just take from the rich and give to the poor and then everything is solved. And so you daydream about potential futures and then you suddenly start to think oh I don't know if I do agree with this or you think yes no I definitely do agree with this because I've just played out the alternative in my mind and that's much worse and now I feel much better about my view so daydream can be useful to clarify and justify and and um, make more sense of what we what we feel about certain political and social issues or uh, personal um, attributes or ideas or hopes or dreams. So, yeah, you can see how, uh, you know, daydreaming can order the chaos with the, uh, you know, using the characteristics of flow, you know, having goals. Let me see if I can explore really what I'm thinking. Sit there and daydream. Imagine what life's going to be like under a Labour government. Or sit there and daydream and imagine what I'd be like as someone in power. Or sit there and daydream. So you can see how daydreaming could be a really useful tool if using it with certain rules with a certain hope of an outcome. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's literally just four sentences of the, ch <laughs> of the chapter, which is why I wasn't prepared for... A, I hadn't 
run this through my mind as a daydream to think about whether well, I hadn't been concentrating on my own daydreams recently to see if I had any insights. And then I hadn't been daydreaming about those insights as to how I would present them on this podcast in order to have already ordered thoughts so that I could actually just pay attention to my delivery of them in the moment when recording, as opposed to trying to take the chaos of all the confused thoughts and knock them into some kind of shape, which is why I didn't have a good answer to my daydreams and why I reverted to daydreams of the past. And then I also found myself thinking, oh, but for anyone to understand that, I have to give my entire life history starting from 1987 right to the present day so that there's no ambiguity and no one could misinterpret anything I say. <laughs> yes, OK, so uh, um, just to, to refer you back to my my core desire for this podcast is that or at least this season that we don't just talk about the book but we try and make it relevant to the topic the broader topic and the overarching schemes that we are exploring in private practice podcasts so i think daydreaming is one that's very accessible to everyone what are the other topics though that we're going to talk about history science Hold on. You know, uh... can you remember the second topic that we're moving on to now um I thought it was history, but it might be science. You've got it wrong. It was memory. <laughs> you forgot that one. <laughs> oh, they're getting better. They're getting better. Let's see if you can recall another pre-prepared joke. I genuinely hadn't pre-prepared that joke in the moment. I thought it up because... You're really funny. Yeah, exactly. I just wanted you to say it, not me. Uh, so he refers to memory as the mother of science and um, he goes a long way back to um, uh, to days before long 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 before the printing press centuries ago before written communication the only way that knowledge could be passed on was by people remembering it and um, these days remembering things is not essential and frankly, do you think it's reasonable to say that most people tend to not to bother remembering things because you can just store it in your phone or research it on the internet? I mean, there's a lot of categories that we don't bother to remember. Uh, when I was a child, we'd have to remember telephone numbers. You know, that was something that we were taught to do, remember telephone numbers. And nowadays, lots of people don't even know their own telephone number. So, um, yeah, I'd say in, in some things... But, you know, we learn in, in schools and universities uh, to remember things and then we're tested on what we remember in exams. So I do th still think memory is essential. And also without memory, we aren't able to interact and develop relationships. So I think memory is still absolutely essential. But remembering facts and figures probably less important and less essential as it used to be. Um, well... In the book, it says a mind with some stable content to it is much richer than one without. Someone yeah. who has nothing to remember, for them, life can become severely impoverished. Well, uh, yeah, I think, you know, how much you enjoy your job might also be weighted as to how much you have to remember in order to be good at your job. Um, so as a nurse, you have to remember quite a lot of things and you have to keep them in mind. It's not to say that you don't sometimes need to access, you know... Um, 
the literature or the database or the uh, another professional who has a, a better working memory and knowledge of certain areas. But you need to be aware of so many things in nursing. And probably the same is true of um, creative pursuits and financial um, jobs, um, law. <laughs> it's so many things you have to know and remember and retain and be able to recall even that those things exist that they are important that they are factors in what we do and i think the most fulfilling jobs are potentially the ones where there is the widest scope of things to remember have you ever used a memory palace for anything um i i found that very very tricky i understand the concept of it and um, I, I've used similar techniques, but I wouldn't say I'm the Sherlock Holmes memory palace type. More often, more using repetition and where I was and how I felt and colour. And um, but that's a memory palace. You're um, you're remembering something by revisiting a location, visualising it, associating colour with words, for example. Oh yeah, cool. Then probably to a lesser extent, I have. Maybe you haven't built the divine Le Corbusier master plan uh -huh. of the memory palace. But you do, you do, if you, for example, remember something by uh, remembering where you were and what the colours were that you could see at the time and so on, then that's as much a memory palace. Because um, the idea is to associate words with pictures and mental geography. So, for example, uh, it's very useful when learning a language because you can put all the prepositions in one place, all the nouns in one place, all the verbs, all the parts of speech in different rooms of the palace. So you go to the room to find the part of speech and then in that room, to remember the most vital ones, you associate images with the word. So if I use parts of speech in English, for example, if you put modal verbs, if you're learning English and you put modal verbs into a room, you have, for example, would. If you remember that would means I conditionally in the future will do something, but it also means cut down a tree, hack it up and make a guitar, then you can picture that wooden guitar and say, in the future, I would play guitar if I could, if I learn how to do it now, for example. And you associate one of the modal verbs with playing a guitar. Then you take um, might, I might be able to knock down that tree with my bare hands without a chainsaw because I have great might. That's one way of doing it, associating different word meanings together. So if you remember one word meaning, you can apply it to another. But you could also, uh, you could remember a scenario. So if you remember, if you're, try if you're trying to remember each of the modal verbs, for each one you create a scenario in the future that's conditional, for example, if I could have the house of my dreams, it would be on a cliff. And then you deliberately make the image of it ridiculous. So let's say it's a great big Disneyland palace, but it's right on the edge of the cliff and it's kind of falling off. It's, a, it's, a, it's an image that's easy to remember. When you're trying to remember that part of speech, you go to that palace teetering on the edge of a cliff and this is where it becomes slightly ambiguous for me because at that point you have to remember that it would be falling off a cliff. I'm not sure I've got that absolutely right. But I can give you an example of a memory palace that I have in my mind instead of some vague one. Um, the, the, the one and only specific memory palace I built was 
around 10 years ago. And it was because I was actually reading a book about happiness, not the flow book, but I'd started to read a book about happiness. It wasn't a very good one. It came free with a newspaper and I only got into maybe the second chapter. But there was a quote, <laughs> <laughs> there was a quote in it that I kept wanting to remember to repeat to a friend of mine who doesn't like pop psychology, philosophical tidbits, reducing philosophy to little bite-sized quotes that you can give away free with a newspaper. He, does, he hates that kind of thing. And I saw a perfect quote that I wanted to quote to him as a joke. And I could not remember that quote. And about three times I tried and failed to quote the thing. And it was always a case of, oh, yes, there's something you'll love in this book. It's, um, oh, what is it? It's, um, uh, it's, it's, some, it's happiness. Um, oh, I wish I could remember it now. It played out like that every single time. And I thought, I'm going to remember this quote if it's the last thing I do. This quote will be written on my tombstone. And so I decided to try the memory palace. So uh, forget that example I just gave. And if I edit the example I just gave out, forget the example that you haven't heard. And let's use this example. I put the quote into rooms of the flat uh, on the beach where I was living at the time. So you go in the front door. On the left is a small bedroom. And in there is the word happiness. And I remembered it was the word happiness because the capital H was oversized and the two legs of the H were going through the floor into the neighbor's flat. And there was an angry neighbor downstairs, furious at having two holes in the ceiling and the letter H coming through. And the neighbor was banging. The more elaborate this is and the more ridiculous it is, the more easy it is to remember. The neighbor's banging on the ceiling, shouting, get your H out of my flat. Uh-huh. Um, then you walk into the next bedroom, which is slightly bigger and has a double bed in it. And in that, there's a word that is wearing kind of sexy, slinky, silky pyjamas. And it's reclined on the bed. And it's kind of like in a suggestive way, winking at you, waiting for you to come in. It, the, the word is like a sexual temptress. And that um, word was that, is... Was, was that your mum's bedroom, was it? Yes, factually correct, it was my mum's bedroom. Um, and okay. on that bed in, was... In sexy mum's bedroom, the word was... <laughs> the word was presupposes. And the reason it was sexy is because within the word presupposes is the word poses, and the word was posing on the bed in a provocative way. So far, happiness presupposes. Then you go in the bathroom, and there are three little words, and it doesn't matter what they are. And then you go in the living room, and there's a giant overlapping neon bright glowing pair of O's, perfectly, perfect circles, perfectly circular O's, two words that begin with O, and they prevented you from getting into the room, so they were an obstacle, and one of those words was obstacles. And the quote was, happiness presupposes our having to overcome obstacles, because you had to overcome the obstacle to get into the living room and to remember the quote in its entirety. And 10 years later, I can remember that little quote like it was, like I, in fact, frankly, if I just, I was going to say like I just read it five minutes ago, but to be honest, if I had read it for the first time five minutes ago and not made a memory palace, I would definitely have forgotten it by now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So give us, the, give us the phrase again. Happiness presupposes our having to overcome obstacles. So that's the challenge on the flow chart. Happiness presupposes our having to overcome obstacles. I don't, I don't really understand that. Sorry, help me understand that. Achieving happiness, the end goal. So I, I, the quote's not a very good one because it takes happiness as a symbolic end goal 
and it presents it as if it's just an, uh, as if there's a nifty little life hack that will get you there. And also the way that the quote is worded is kind of a little bit pretentious and deliberately clouds the situation, which is why you're asking me to clarify it. But the symbolic goal of happiness, the thing you're trying to achieve, it establishes as a necessary condition the fact that you have to jump through hoops to be happy. You can't just be happy if you're lazy. You have to work to be happy, is what the quote says. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess I like the meaning. You do, you do have to work on happiness. And I think that's what we're talking about today. The active, intentional ordering of your mind requires some work. And when we're look, talking about chaotic thinking and troublesome thought patterns and um, uh, cognitive dissonance having two ideas that are opposing in your mind at the same time or cognitive distortions where you're using mental tricks that you're not making yourself aware of like um, discounting the positive black and white thinking um, a negative filter um, fortune telling mind reading personalization blame all of those kind of things need active purposeful concentration and hard work to overcome they also need recognition of the fact that we're already engaging in cognitive distortions all of which we mention in to a greater or lesser extent in all of our seasons of private practice podcasts and i do think that you've given a very good example of how making an effort to remember something useful it in itself is an activity that is enjoyable but also the outcome of that is secondarily useful you weren't only able to irritate your friend with a pop <laughs> pop psychology quote. There was something contained within the quote that you to this day can probably use in your life about happiness, about having to work at it. So I think that actually was a really good quote to use to, over a 15-minute period, explain what a memory palace was. Yeah, so if we follow the breadcrumbs back and we try and remember where, how we got to this, talking about memory, another thing that makes these kinds of memory games useful for me is the fact that I, uh, I have a fantastic sense of direction. So whilst that is a brag, I can equally say that that kind of overcompensates for my total inability to grasp numbers. And so a perfect example of this is that I can tell you exactly how to get anywhere in London by public transport, even though I haven't lived there for two years. You know, ask me which bus goes down Holloway Road to Highbury Barn and comes from Barnet Hospital. And I know exactly that it's a double-decker bus and it's run by Metroline and I know exactly which roads it takes and I know when it turns left and right and where it stops and what other buses connect with it and the fact that you can catch it from the Piccadilly line at Holloway Road Station or the Northern line at Archway Station or the Victoria line and the Overground at Highbury and Islington, etc., etc. But ask me what the number is and I say, uh, well, it's three digits and it starts with... No, I don't know what it starts with. And it was, I think it's got a three in it. And I used to use that bus every single day and I cannot tell you what the number is because I just can't remember numbers. But I can remember all kinds of other details that sort of like give you the label of being kind of like a, a geeky, nerdy, oh, well, what kind of idiot knows that that bus in North London is run by Metroline unless you're some kind of bus nerd? Well, I can, I can visualise the logo. I can picture what the bus looked like. I can remember exactly what it felt like to sit on the bus. And I was 
uh, upstairs looking out the window, I know exactly what it looked like to not only look out the window, but to know everything around me, know what was north, south, east and west of me, know my sort of like essentially mentally map my coordinates in the grander scheme of the whole of Greater London and visualise myself moving through a large metropolis and how I was connecting with everything else. I find that very easy, but I can't remember numbers and I can't do mental arithmetic. It has to be on a paper or calculator. I see. So in terms of the chapter, in terms of... Yes, in terms of the activities that we're talking about. Um, we're actually to, only on number one of six. Yeah, to, yeah. I don't know, James. James, I don't think that each time we have to go through everything that is in, contained within every page <laughs> of every chapter. I think this is about talking to our listener about the overarching... No, James, look at me. Thank you. This is about the overarching topics of our podcast. It is not a freaking book review. It is not a page-by-page -page analysis of what the book is. A digested the, read. You know, everything you need to know in five minutes. Well, we're not, not, fucking not five blink minutes in my case. We are the worst blink list ever. We take longer to read the book. <laughs> have you ever wanted to read a book in six months? Have you ever hoped to delve into it page by page, sentence by sentence, word by word, letter by letter? And not only come out of it knowing the entire contents of the book, but also the entire history of James's 32 years on the planet as well. I mean, that to me is some of the best bits of this podcast. It's more the going back. Well, we're on line seven. <laughs> we're... We're 53 minutes in and we're on line seven, Dan. Um, that reminds me, when I was seven, my father was 53. It was a very interesting time. He had just told me that after seven, all children become little evil bastards. OK, so uh, well, what are the core messages that we're hoping to take from this episode? What, what else, perhaps... Uh, could we look at and explore without having to go through all six of the other topics? You know, okay. so that we can, we can, you know, moving on. There's also all kinds of different mnemonics, aren't there? A memory palace is a mnemonic, isn't it? It's a technique that you use that can be fun, it can be interesting. Sherlock Holmes famously used the memory palace and was very, you know, in, obviously he's a... He's a um, uh, a fictional character, but he had an incredible brain which which would use a uh, imagined and uh, rich um, uh, fantasy building with which to pin and and store information and facts and he would do it with everything that he saw and everything that he read and everything that he knew so that he could access it very quickly at any moment and there 's lots of different techniques like the um you know like songs and um and pictures and, and various different, uh, you know, rhymes and riddles and things for you to remember things. Like Richard of York gained battle in vain to remember the colours of the rainbow. Well, at the risk of referencing the book, I'm going to do exactly <laughs> that. I'm going to read from the book. Because he says, the point is that playing with ideas is extremely exhilarating. Not only philosophy, but the emergence of new scientific ideas is fueled by the enjoyment one obtains from creating a new way to describe reality. The tools that make the flow of thought possible are common property. 
and consist of the knowledge recorded in books available in schools and libraries. A person who becomes familiar with the conventions of poetry or the rules of calculus can subsequently grow independent of external stimulation. So therefore, when you have uh, the... Well, it's not just external stimulation. When you have the swirling chaos of the mind, but presumably you have, to some extent, ordered your consciousness to get to chapter 6 in the book. I think that's the assumption Michele Chitson Michele has made here because uh, in order to create, in order to daydream, in order to be a philosopher, an amateur philosopher and so on, uh, you have to have already mastered the art of recognising thoughts and not getting distracted by them and creating order in consciousness so that you can then use your brain for flow activities like the rest of your body. Yep, nice, Okay. Um, and I think, you know, a, a lot of what we do in university is, uh, I mean, I don't know that they teach us these these skills and techniques as they should. We, we are much more focused around memorising information rather than learning to use our brain. Um, I don't think that school taught me to use my brain. I think school tried to teach me to memorise a lot of information, most of which is... <sighs> is not useful later on um, or hasn't been that useful to me. Obviously, some of the basics are, you know. But, um, yes, the uh, Chitza and Michele is really asking us to to go back to basics in many ways if we haven't already achieved some of some of what he's talking about. Try and think about our brain as a tool, as a as a kind of a workshop, as a as a training ground to be able to breed happiness and enjoyment from simply thinking and and using different games and using different ideas and trying things out and being able to get pleasure even if we were to have no external stimulus you know if we close our eyes and you know sit in a darkened room and walk away from the television and our electronic devices what could we do right now I mean something I like to do although I must say I do get distracted when it for, 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 I mean, maybe it doesn't need to lead to something super productive, but is uh, writing little songs in my head, you know, a few lines of a song and putting a melody to it. Um, and, and I find that very enjoyable, and that can while away minutes quite easily. Um, and throughout the book, he's he's forever talking about little, almost meaningless, pointless, in a way, things that people do, but give themselves, yeah, give the activity in itself a meaning, you know, the enjoyment... Well, we've talked about uh, briefly before writing down your thoughts on a daily basis so that after some time has passed, you can read them all back and see if they make sense. And therefore, instead of having them swirling around in your mind, it's not so much creating order in consciousness. You are creating order in consciousness, but you're not doing it in consciousness. You're writing it down on paper so that you can then subsequently put it back in your mind by reading it back and seeing if it makes sense in the future. And often you'll find patterns, often you'll find you've written things that you look back and think, no, that's rubbish. Or you'll look back on something you've written and you'll see it in a new perspective that you couldn't see at the time because it was just swirling around in chaos. So actually writing things, so taking thoughts out of your mind and writing them down and then storing them so that you can put them back in your mind at a later date can be a useful form of actually ordering consciousness instead of just doing it in the brain. But this is still a kind of a precursor. I would say ordering consciousness presupposes our having to overcome psychic entropy. 
see if you can remember that one in 10 years time. <laughs> so I think in order to do all the things in this chapter, you have to have, uh, uh, you have to have taken stuff from the previous five chapters to try and eliminate some of the psychic entropy and the swirling chaos of thoughts in your mind so that you can use your brain as a, as a tool for a flow experience. So Shall we move on to the psychoanalysis bit? Because I don't know if it's necessarily next, but obviously that doesn't matter. Yes, go on then. So the chunk of the chapter that alludes to psychoanalysis, which is the bit that we're going to focus on within this chunk, is uh, where he talks about Cleo. Talks about, well, he, it's called Befriending Cleo. He talks about history. And there are two forms of history here. So the one we're looking at potentially slightly less is the history of the world. So the history that everyone knows, in, at least in concept, the idea of everything that has, all the, all the events that have happened in the past. Um, and to some extent, having, um, in terms of a flow activity, uh, learning as much as you can about the past and ordering the past so that it makes sense of the present in your mind is a flow activity in itself. So it's learning history and using that information to make sense of the present in an ordered fashion in your mind is uh, using history as a flow activity with nothing but the mind. But there's also your personal history and that's where psychoanalysis comes in because the purpose of psychoanalysis is to spend as long as it takes making sense of your life history. So when you go into psychoanalysis, you maybe have a very confused, frustrated account of your past. It's difficult to make sense of a relationship or of childhood abuse or um, unfulfilled wishes and desires. Uh, it's difficult to recognise what comes from your childhood and how it affects you in the present day when your perception of your own personal history is chaotic. So creating order in your own personal history is essentially what the psychoanalyst tries to do. Yeah. I mean, it's not just about history, is it? It's also about your sense of who you are now. And that, isn't that informed by everything that you know? Yes, yes, but psychoanalysis isn't simply... That that's not the only that's not the only um okay okay uh, i i think i feel like they're two separate things like to to be able to experience the now but also to order the uh, the past yeah well there's being able to experience the now is more cognitive behavioral therapy whereas the freudian or jungian analysis of the past is in effectively reinforcing your psychic energy to be more ordered so that you can tackle the present and the future uh, without having to constantly fall back on the CBT process and going through little exercises and hacks. This takes us... So if uh, you haven't listened to our CBT and Freud episode... It's called CBT and Freud. It could be called CBT and Jung. It doesn't, it's, it's not specifically about Freudian analysis and not Jungian analysis. It's just about considered analysis going back into your childhood as, a, as opposed to cognitive behavioural therapy being 
a tool for the present to allow you to act in the moment when things happen to you. Yes, is, yes. Is, no. is that the distinction that you were saying? The two different things. Yes and no. I, I suppose I'm just in, in talking about the topic that we're on now, and talking about ordering the mind. I just wanted to make the distinction that going into uh, psychoanalysis isn't just about ordering the past; it is also about the present. That's all. Say it in a touchy-feely Daniel P. Brown way, because I've just said it in a clinical, ordered, megalomaniac way. Okay, well, we're looking at using using thought, um, making thought useful, uh, thought as a playground or a training ground, and we just started looking at psychoanalysis. And psychoanalysis, although perhaps you know the core outcome would be that you have a better understanding, you have ordered your history, you've ordered your past. It isn't just about that. There's a experience in the moment as well there's a reason in the here and now maybe it was just so obvious that i didn't need to say that but i just simply was saying that it isn't simply about ordering the past it's ordering the past for enjoyment or fulfillment in the present so you're acknowledging transference and counter-transference as being a vital part of psychoanalysis that isn't necessarily the same as diving into the past and seeing how that informs the present if you like yep Although wouldn't, I would still wonder if transference and counter-transference still comes from core beliefs and attachment theory and, and trauma and all kinds of things from the past that inform your present behaviour. And therefore to observe, observe the present behaviour, to think about the feelings, to be in the moment, to count the blue things, to see how someone reacts to you, to recognise the thoughts you're having right now, all this... I don't want to sound dismissive, but what I want to say is touchy-feely, hippy-dippy-doody-wacky ways of thinking are, are just manifestations of the subconscious, which is rooted in all of your history. Okay, okay. All right, um, I feel like we're going off on a tangent here and perhaps I'm misunderstanding some of your lofty um, <laughs> argu- arguments. I, I, don't, I don't know 100%, so... Well, okay, let me therefore read what Mickley Chitson Mickley says. Psychoanalysis is to a large extent an attempt to bring order to people's garbled histories of their childhood. This task of making sense of the past again becomes important in old age. I don't want to go off on a great big tangent about dementia, giving an entire potted history of my grandma's development of dementia, but your making sense of the past becomes important in old age. In that last stage of human life cycle, it incorporates the task of achieving integrity or bringing together what you've accomplished and what you've failed to accomplish in the course of your life into a meaningful story that can be claimed as your own. Uh, But also, if you find that your memory is deteriorating, then having less chaos in your mind and having your history reinforced to some extent... Uh, helps to alleviate the confusion when it starts to disintegrate. So I don't know if there's, I don't know if I've just made that up or if there's some truth in it. Yes, it's it's about uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm I think I'm losing you, James. Here, but let's skip on to something slightly less confusing for me. You want you, you want something basic and fun? Well, uh, not not just basic and fun, but but something that's moving away from the more complex uh, elements of uh, psychoanalysis to the more 
um, user-friendly and accessible? <laughs> well, a substantial amount of the gist of this chapter is talking about doing things as an amateur. So um, he he distinguishes between the... <laughs> Sorry, you wanted me to make this more accessible and I'm, gonna, I'm about to quote you some Latin. <laughs> Okie dokie. <laughs> this is my idea of accessible. He distinguishes between an amateur and... Well, let me read. So nowadays the labels are slightly derogatory of amateur and dilettante. An amateur or a dilettante is someone not quite up to par, a person not to be taken very seriously, one whose performance falls short of professional standards. But originally, amateur, from the Latin verb amare, to love, referred to a person who loved what he was doing as opposed to having to do it to earn money to live in a capitalist society. And so when he talks about science and history and philosophy and so on, he's saying that pursuing these subjects and increasing the complexity of the challenge of learning them, so starting at the appropriate level, so if you know nothing about philosophy, maybe you just read a pop philosophy book from Waterstones. And then if you find that interesting, you think, oh, but what did Nietzsche and Jung and Plato and Aristotle write about? Um, Maybe there's a digested read of their main ideas. And then when you start to think, yeah, I think I do understand the difference between these different people. I want to know more. Maybe you start to then listen to, for example, the Partially Examined Life podcast, which goes into quite a lot of detail, but is still accessible, Dan's favourite word, if you're playing along at home with the drinking game, every time we say flow or accessible, uh, down a shot until you're absolutely plastered drunk. You listen to the the, the Private Practice podcast, the Partially Examined Life podcast, to hear conversations about very complicated topics. It takes a lot of attention to follow what they're saying in that podcast, but it's still some friends having fun talking to each other and then maybe you're ready for the ultimate challenge of reading the complete works of Aristotle and Karl Marx and Nietzsche and Jung and all these people and by that point you have such a broad knowledge of these topics and it's so enjoyable for you to expand that complexity that you have to keep matching the challenge on that flow diagram to continue the flow experience and create more complexity. And that's the pursuit of knowledge for enjoyment as opposed to, I am a philosopher, I need to philosophize to earn money for my rent and my food and my children, and I'd better think of something good soon, otherwise that Uh, rent payment won't pay itself. Exactly, yes. The enjoyment of knowledge, the enjoyment of ordering... Uh, experience in in your mind yeah yeah I like it I like it okay so I feel like we're just going through the topics now and I I want this to be a useful podcast but I also know that you like going through the topics what 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 is your personal thoughts on that on philosophy as flow or as a flow activity well for me the topic that I have chosen to pursue, or one of the topics I've chosen to pursue is the ideas of psychoanalysis, which came from you lending me your books and me finding enjoyment in reading 
So basically, the first one you gave me was the most accessible down a shot, which was <laughs> our favorite, Irvin Yalom and Love uh-huh. Sex Ecutioner, Ecutioner which, yeah. which introduces ideas of psychoanalysis in a narrative, highly entertaining, kind of often page turning uh, novel style, novel as in fictional book. And then when I enjoyed that, you gave me a book of his that was slightly more complex. It wasn't written in a, in a sort of like storytelling style. It was a book more about ideas. And then I wanted to know what are the different ideas in psychoanalysis. And so you gave me some other books. And then I went off on my own trying to find uh, people to listen to to talk about this. And in the process of that, that branched out into politics and sociology and there are huge gaps in my knowledge but as of the past year um i've made maybe you could say i've combined my flow activities the walking the physical movement with listening to podcasts about ideas that i never really used to understand and even um there were some lectures that i was listening to a year ago now and at the time of listening to them i thought kind of like this is dirty hard work trying to follow <laughs> what's being said here and there's a lot of stuff being referenced and I and the, and it's three hours long as well, and I stuck with it. And by now, I listen to these kinds of lectures all the time, and I'm listening out for the specific ideas that are fleshed out in a particular lecture, as opposed to just trying to follow it. So I have found the enjoyment of trying to understand what these people are talking about, and recognize the fact that I have to constantly match the challenge with my ability. So when I start to understand ideas, I then have to understand them better or look into more detail in them. But there are some ideas that I simply don't understand at all. And so it would be pointless to read a complicated book or listen to a very complicated podcast about the subject starting from zero. It always comes back to that graph where you have to match your ability with your expectations. And equally, you don't have to become an amateur philosopher. This, along with everything in the book, is a suggestion. So this is a mental suggestion. We've given, mostly in previous episodes, physical suggestions of walking, being a ballerina. Rock climbing. Rock climbing comes up a lot, yes. Those sorts of things and how people find flow with those activities. But this chapter is all about mental activities And therefore, possibly they are accessible to all, or maybe some are less accessible, or at least if, uh, not to beat around the bush too much, but if you're uh, not the sharpest tool in the box, you might have to start with a dummy's guide to whatever it is you want to achieve flowing. (laughs) But, you know, if you want to achieve flow, it it doesn't have to be about something ultra-complex like... um you know, string theory or, or, or theoretical physics of, of any kind or... No, but that's the complexity break. further up the flow diagram. So that's yeah, basically exactly. just science. So you start off with kind of like science for kids. Uh, and, you know, look at, the, look at this. When you pour this into that, it changes colour. And isn't chemistry fun for kids to watch the thing change the colour or the explosion or stuff like that? String theory comes after a lifelong passion for science, whereby you're not learning because you have to be a scientist to earn money. You're learning because uh, you find it interesting and, and, and it's an enjoyable process. And when you get to the point whereby you know a lot 
about the subject as an amateur, you can start to think, but do I really understand the most complicated subjects like string theory? And then you can start to read the book on string theory because it won't be inaccessible to you at that point. You'll have made your way up that flow... What, what's a slide, but going upwards, not down? A ladder? I don't know. Okay, a, you've uh... climbed that flow ladder. Yep, you've climbed the flow ladder. Now, let's just, let's just talk about a sewage pipe, but counter-gravity. So you have made your way up the flowing sewage pipe, back into the intestines. <laughs> <and> <laughs> through the bowels to create new complexity in the intestines. Yes, what a lovely analogy that makes perfect sense. Okay, so to summarise, or uh, James, have you got a list of more things that are in the book that you wish to talk about? Or, or are we at a summary kind of a point To be honest, the three, the three main subjects in the book, philosophy, science and history, all more or less say the same thing, that the end goal should not be symbolic. It shouldn't be so that you become really clever so you can show off your knowledge. It shouldn't be so that you can get letters after your name on your CV and your business cards. Uh, it shouldn't be so that... Uh, t- he says, to write down one's insights, expecting that someday they will be read with awe by posterity, would be in most cases an act of hubris, presumption that has caused so much mischief in human affairs. So it's sort of like the arguably the Boris Johnson case of wanting to go down in history. Pursuing politics for him is potentially status and a symbolic goal and going down in history alongside Winston Churchill. It's not so much pursuing politics for the enjoyment of uh, knowledge and making a difference and exploring your own limits of what you can understand and what difference you can make to the world. It's just, I will be the greatest I will one day achieve what few before me have achieved and I will go down in the history books. That's not a flow activity. That's kind of delusion. And the most likely scenario is that you won't achieve it. And if you do achieve it, it doesn't bring happiness. Yeah, all throughout flow, it's, it's looking at the activity for the enjoyment and the, and the pleasure of the activity itself rather than for any um, potential outcome that is not to ignore potential positive and negative outcomes, but it's that we're really encouraging our listener to start engaging in activities aside from the computer screen and the telephone um, and the smartphone and the things outside of that. And, and this week we're really looking at all of the things you can do in your mind with almost no activity, um, uh, with almost no accoutrements. Accoutrements, is that some kind of accessible word that Dan Brown of the people just throws out? Or is that one of the lofty words that will make people think that this episode is providing a challenge way beyond ability and I'm not in flow right now? Well, you've got to put a few challenging words in here and there, don't you? (laughs) Maybe our listeners are so sophisticated that they have fallen asleep because we're not challenging them anywhere near enough for their level on the flow diagram. There's Basically, we have set ourselves an impossible task to fulfil every potential listener because they're all, they're all going to be at different levels of ability and it's impossible for us to match all those levels simultaneously. But what we can do is have 
Dan, the accessible, friendly, everyman, voice of the people. And James, the weird, megalomaniac, sometimes lofty idiot, but at the same time, at the same time, sometimes, I think sometimes I, I, I uh, plummet down to being at the level of the, 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 the dummy's guide to everything at the start of the flow ladder, whereby I am ill-informed about a topic, but I quite happily talk about it nevertheless. I think really the listener will have to decide for themselves whether this is too challenging, just challenging enough, or not challenging at all. Are you motivated for the rest of not only 2020, but the decade? Or are you falling into an end, because we're, we're actually recording this at the end of 2019, are you falling into an end of an era slump and you're hoping that you'll be dragged out of it for what, in your timeline, is the real new decade, which hasn't happened yet. Uh, you're asking me directly. I'm you? asking you directly. I'm seeing if I can slightly reinflate you to end this podcast on a massive <laughs> positive high, uh, the ah, shooting yeah. those fireworks, New Year yep. fireworks into the uh-huh. sky, yep. thinking about everything yep. that's yep. still to come. Oh. Amazing. Yes, I see where you're getting at now. You were detecting my slump into a thoughtful yet not necessarily podcast-worthy state of mind. And you were asking me to come back to the podcast and summarise with aplomb. I wouldn't put it so politely. I'd say I was looking at a lump of jelly uh, at the other end, flopped on the private practice podcast couch... Okay, after a poor night's sleep, I woke up this morning to a barrage of critical text messages from a good friend in Spain. And I got myself, dragged myself out of bed after an appalling night's, in fact, a few appalling nights sleep. And I got myself down here and I found my new memory card. At whip stage, I was raring to go. Now, towards the end of the day, I must say I have lost some of my energy. But, James, I still think that we have worthily ploughed through uh, an interesting <laughs> and somewhat somewhat difficult chapter because it's been making me think about thinking whilst I'm talking about thinking about thinking. So perhaps to end on a positive would be to say I'm definitely going to be trying to employ some of the techniques that we've spoken about today. And I think perhaps I've been considering whether I have become slovenly and lazy in my academic and work life. And and so, yes, perhaps you're picking up on that. I've been considering the topic at hand and personalising it. The only thing I feel distinctly dissatisfied about from this episode is that one of the main connections between this chapter and our odyssey as a whole is how interpreting your own personal history in the context of psychoanalysis is not only beneficial on the basis of all the things we talked about in the last season but it's also a flow activity beneficial in terms of all the things we're talking about in this season and yet what we basically did was say psychoanalysis is a flow activity whereby you speak to an analyst and between you, you try and make sense of your past and you try and order consciousness in the present in terms of memories and understanding of your past. 
And uh-huh. not only is, does that have a useful outcome, but it's also a flow activity. And you kind of said, um, I'm not so sure about this. I think we're getting too heavy now. What's next on your list, James? <laughs> I'm sorry, James. I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. Um, yes, I, I completely agree with it. I'm sure that's not what I heard you say before. <laughs> I'm sure I heard you say something completely different. So we'll leave it to the listener to go back to that section where perhaps I wasn't listening properly, but perhaps you didn't put it quite as well as you just did. Uh, the experience that I have been through myself eight years of once to twice a weekly flow activity really was was an incredible experience and although yes there weren't very very set outcomes for it I enjoyed and and took pleasure at points in the activity itself the, well, that's a the, good point actually set outcomes if whilst you have maybe 17 percent battery remaining in your brain um can we rinse the last available juices just to expand on this slightly um the idea of setting goals and how you obviously have feedback from your analyst but uh, in terms of setting goals is there's there's a difference between a symbolic goal of thinking i'm going into analysis to be better within two years that's more of a cbt based symbolic goal outcome which is why i don't like cbt so much even though i do recognize it has its uses in catastrophic scenarios where there isn't time for psychoanalysis but the reason i like psychoanalysis so much is because it doesn't present that symbolic goal of a nifty little life hack to going from depressed to happy where happy is on a par with rich famous celebrity beautiful it's a it's a shallow uh symbolic goal that doesn't actually bring you any uh complexity or ordering consciousness whereas going into psychoanalysis if you don't have that symbolic goal of in so you know in two years time i'm going to be happy from my psychoanalysis i'm going to be rich from my boring job i'm going to be successful from my underwhelming but undeniably beautiful relationship partner I'm going to be popular from my totally traumatic and yet well-subscribed YouTube channel. All these sorts of things. Psychoanalysis, if it's CBT, if it's, um, if it's a symbolic goal, is as meaningless as everything that I just listed. But if there isn't a symbolic goal, if it's just a case of, I want to create order in consciousness, I want to better understand my own history to make sense of the present so that I can not have this swirling chaos of thoughts in my mind, not only is it conducive to creating the conditions of flow, which takes us back to the, I think, the, third, the, the chapter three in the book, but it's also a flow activity in itself. It's enjoyable to understand yourself better. Sorry, conditions of flow was chapter four for anyone pedantic out there. It's a flow activity in itself to go through that process. So it's win-win. It is. It's like the the every every um, hour that you spend with your therapist is is an experience. It it doesn't always have uh, the same outcome as such. It doesn't have those goals to have achieved, tick done, onto the next thing. But to get into the space and make best use of it, or make use of it at all, or or be present or or even be able to engage with the therapist it's there are different challenges within that so those 
in essence, are kind of ongoing goals with with feedback perhaps being um, how your thinking might change uh, or how your thinking might be directed or how your feelings might change or which feelings might come up that you, you weren't expecting to experience. So often the idea of goals and outcomes are this positive tick lifts of achievements. But in psychoanalysis, on a week-by-week basis, there wouldn't necessarily be a um, the to-do list, tick, 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 tick. But engaging in that process itself is the outcome and feeling and thinking and experiencing. So yes, and, and it is quite an incredible experience and it's not something that you can experience in many other settings um although obviously elements of it the way that you immerse yourself in something for (laughs) broader bigger goals of perhaps self-improvement or understanding or ordering consciousness but yeah psychoanalysis is an is an it's an incredibly rare experience although i do think some people will experience elements of it in relationships and in and in in their work probably as well and I think probably writing and and creative pursuits would have a very similar kind of a an outcome the way that emotions and and memories and beliefs are brought up and challenged and explored so yes psych- the process of analysis and the process of being in a psychotherapeutic relationship are incredibly powerful flow experiences uh, and quite seductive is not quite the right word but something that you might want to continue and go on forever I know that I miss my therapist and I miss those sessions and I don't have that same experience on a week-by-week basis anymore but yeah but in another way also when we're talking about flow and these activities I think the idea that the flow activities can be enjoyable but also challenging is something that perhaps we look at a bit more in in other weeks but um the challenge can mean that it's not always pleasurable and the enjoyment isn't immediate but it comes from the longer term pursuit of the activity and today we were talking about different ways of using the mind that could be very enjoyable in the moment whether it's you know creating a memory palace to remember a phrase that will annoy a friend or whether it's um uh, writing a song or engaging in the pursuit of academic knowledge for the sake of understanding and fulfillment they are activities with a real wide range and therapy i think perhaps perhaps i zoned out a bit whilst we were talking about it because i see it as more of a longer term commitment to a set of ideals um but yeah it also is and i'm quite certain i did say this but it also is in the moment a flow activity something that in the present is giving you something but a flow activity in the present but ultimately creating more complexity yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. And I think of you as a very complex individual. Thank you, I guess. <laughs> and I think of you as an impossibly complex individual. So. I, I certainly think of you as a challenge, and both of those are on the same point in the graph. Excellent. Good. Um, likewise, James. And so... Next time on Private Practice Podcast Flow Season, we're going to be looking at work as flow, the autotelic experience available in work. And a little reminder that I read this chapter whilst not working 
uh, on the golden sands of the beaches of the south of France. Um, L- lovely, I lovely. Sat, I, I sat there with all the time in the world, the perfectly calm water, just very gently lapping against the shore, crystal clear, reflecting the brilliant blue sky, the soft, warm sand on my skin, reading about people working in a factory and finding flow experiences. Lovely. Um, I think flow experience at work is something that I can definitely talk a lot about. I very much enjoy my job. Um, It changes throughout the years, and uh, I'll hopefully have a lot to say on that topic, James. Jolly good. In that case, is there anything you'd like to say to our listener or anything to wrap up and say goodbye? Yes, just remembered. Good. Just rem- okay, James. Oh, hold on. No, I need to relaunch Chrome in order to do this. But yes, there is something. Bear with me for a minute. Okay, James, I'll bear with you. Uh, there was a whole uh, chunk of this chapter that we wafted over about conversation and reading as a flow activity and writing, although we kind of just talked about writing a little bit. Okay. So we looked at the origins in Latin of two words, one of them amateur, and the fact that these days an amateur is considered as someone not quite good enough, not professional, um, a bit of a jokey uh, anorak in a shed, a nerd, a geek, that kind of thing. But originally it comes, the, the, the meaning of the word is someone who loves what they're doing as opposed to does something because they have to so an amateur is a person who loves what he is doing and in latin that would be an amateur est qui diligit eum quid facere fuckery (laughs) so that is the lofty high on which i wish to end this episode (laughs) Oh. oh yes very good it wasn't fuckery, though, was it? What, did it, what was that word? Uh, well, I'm assuming it's the Italian pronunciation of C, which would be facere, not facere. Um, I did very briefly learn Latin at school, and I was terrible at it. In fact, I was completely awful at languages in general. It's a small miracle that I've actually got round to continuing to learn French. And on that bombshell, let's say goodbye. So thank you so much to our listener, and we will see you next time on Private Practice Podcast. It's goodbye from me, Daniel P. Brown, in the London studio. And it's goodbye from me, James Hall, in the Spain studio. (laughs) 